Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A strong start. December picking up right where November left off. Rates keep falling. Stocks keep rising. And from tech to regionals to the consumer, it's a sea of green. Should investors keep riding the momentum through year end? We'll debate that. Plus, big fat fail. Pfizer pulling the plug on its twice-a-day weight loss pill as too many patients said no moss to the drug because of the side effects. Is Pfizer in danger of being left out of the obesity boom? Plus, it's Friday, and that means it is time for a little options action. Professor Coe and the Chartmaster together again. They are ready to rap about the regional banks coming up. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Steve Grasso, Fano and Eisen, Carter Worth, and Mike Coe. We'll get to the market's strong start to December in a minute, but we begin with Pfizer and its supersized losses today. The stock falling more than 5% to its lowest level since March 2020 after the drug giant announced it is pulling the plug on its twice-daily weight loss pill. Pfizer saying patients struggle to deal with the side effects from taking this medicine. For the year, Pfizer is now down over 43%, badly lagging its obesity drug rivals. Eli Lilly nearly 60% higher on the year, while, while Novo Nordisk is up 48%. Here now to take us inside today's setback, CNBC's Angelica Peebles. Hey, Angelica. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, so Pfizer's ambitions in the obesity space falling behind today after the drug, Danugliperon, caused high rates of side effects for trial participants. More than 70% reported nausea, nearly half experienced vomiting, and a quarter of participants experienced diarrhea. The twice-daily pill did deliver weight loss of up to 13%, but that was slightly below what the street was looking for. And that, in addition to the side effects, were just too much to overcome. Now, Pfizer says it'll keep working on a once-daily formulation of this pill. The company is expecting data on that in the first half of next year. And those results will determine the next steps, if any, for this pill. But it still puts Pfizer further behind Novo and Lilly as it tries to break into the obesity space. Melissa? Angelica, what is the difference between the once-daily formulation, which is a time-release formulation, and the one that was twice-daily? I mean, why will it yield any different side effects, maybe fewer side effects? But still, you know, the side effects in terms of the percentage of patients that experience them were so high. And that's a big question. I've seen a few analysts today and even investors talking about whether it makes sense for Pfizer to keep moving forward. It's essentially the same drug, but it's once a day versus twice a day. Of course, there's probably some nuances to the to the formulations there, but the idea is that it's still the same drug. And I think that's why you're seeing the reaction that you saw today, where investors are just really negative on the um, on the prospects for this. All right, Angelica, thank you. Angelica Peebles. What was interesting today, too, was that uh, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk wore down on the session even and, and melted down into the close of the session, even though stocks did sort of the opposite. Um, Carter, what's your take on, on these stocks? Well, I mean, the first thing we know is that healthcare has been a massive underperformer to the S&P, and it's breaking uh, its all-data relative trend line. So uh, we don't like it as a space. But what remarkable about Pfizer is, of course, this was always the largest or one of the largest, now number eight in terms of market cap, and its COVID lows are in play. Right. And, and so it still hasn't figured out after all this time what its 
future is post-COVID. I mean, imagine being back before it discovered all these, you know, just sort of seminal vaccines that changed the course of events in the pandemic. Right. You need something to replace or plug that hole. You know, when we listen to that entry, you talk about diarrhea, vomiting and nausea. I'm thinking, doesn't that, isn't that what they're looking for? That's, that's what you want to, no, to lose you weight. You weight loss that way. I kid. <laughs> I kid. But, but when you look at this, they still ha- haven't figured out how to plug that hole. If you look at Moderna, Moderna actually has weaker year-to-date performance than Pfizer. So they're all trying to figure out what the next holy grail is. And they'll continue on that climb until they, until they figure out whether it's a combination of two or M&A and figure out how they do it. I really think the only bull case right now is just recent performance. And, and what we've seen is there's been an outperformance of contrarian bulls. And they've done well over the past you know, couple of months or the last month specifically. But I think when you look at, at Pfizer specifically, I, I think the only way, the real path to growth for them is going to be via acquisition. And that implies that they're going to have to continue to pay a premium in order to be a player in the market. And, and for that reason, it's just tough to really get bulled up. I do think it's really tough to set up a short here just because of the underperformance. But for them to to like essentially climb over the R&D hill, then pay an acquisition premium. They still have this, the, the SGN uh, acquisition that's still on the horizon. I really just think the path for them to be a real player in the space is is going to be difficult. With that said, they have plenty of cash, so I'm, I would expect that they will be in the acquisition market. So they do have that, that pending acquisition, which is now expected to close sometime in 2024, Mike, and that could give them all sorts of new cancer drugs. Um, are we setting up here where this could be a, a real value uh, well, I think it is looking a little bit like a value here. I mean, right now the company's got about a 15% margin. Go back to 2018 when the company was making about 13.5 billion on significantly less revenue than the company's got right now. You get to that number, you're going to get another three and a half, four billion dollars a year in net income. So part of their problem is clearly coming on the expense side. Uh, as far as the appetite suppressant, uh, that basically these side effects basically represent, you'd probably lose more than the 10% that you got on that trial just reading the side effects, I'm guessing. But I mean, that is obviously going to be a critical area, not for, only for them, but for everybody. I mean, that's probably the biggest growth prospect. So I think that's something you're going to have to continue to focus on. Hopefully they can rein some things in on the, on the cost side. And then I also think there's a little bit of liability potentially associated with some of the vaccines. And I think that's weighing on the stock as well. Mm. For more on Pfizer's uh, weight loss pill setback, let's bring in Jared Hulse. He's a healthcare equity strategist at Mizuho. Jared, always good to see you. Um, it's a, you know, in your note this morning, which came out I think at seven o'clock in the morning, uh, you said you didn't expect it to fall more than five percent. It fell a little bit more than five percent. It's amazing that that this was actually in the stock, considering how low the stock was to start with. Exactly. I, I feel like um, you know expectations for Pfizer have been low, I think, for a reason. They have been really unable to, you know, prove their pipeline out to investors, at least over the past few years. I think that's why uh, there continues to be pressure on it. Trades at a low multiple. It's at a 52-week low. It's also trading where it was 30 years ago. So I think it really just depends on what your time horizon is, if you want to take a shot at it right now. But um, I do think that when you look at the reaction today from investors, uh, there's disappointment because the, the company continues to kind of you know, make sure that they are expanding their pipeline and giving you new assets to hold on to. And this one, you know, falls by the wayside. Is there still hope for the once a day pill? What will be the difference between the twice a day and the once a day when it's the same compound except once a day and time released? There's hope for it, but I I wouldn't be betting on it, right? Like 
Pfizer is trying to obviously play catch up here. I think anytime you play catch up in, in this industry, you wind up um, facing uphill battles because a lot of the patients that need the medication are already on Novo or Lilly or have been on a, another clinical trial in the obesity space. So to put out a, another positive clinical trial, I think gets harder by the day. There's diminishing marginal returns, I think, for all of the companies that are trying to play catch up. Um, I'm not very favorable on it. I feel like they're trying to get um, very good efficacy out of one pill. I feel like when we look at the one versus two, efficacy probably comes down. Now you're in the high single digit to low double digit range. Even if safety is good, Lilly and Novo are giving you, you know, 18, 20% weight loss. So at this point then, it sounds like you think Lilly and Novo have a lock on the market. Or is there hope for some of the Because there are still others that are mm -hmm. still working on weight loss drugs. For now, I totally do. I think Amgen's got a shot next year. Pfizer, maybe they continue down the road and grace of God, something good comes out of this one pill. Or they wind up going and acquiring something like Astra did a couple of weeks ago in China. You've got structure out there. You've got turns out there. You've got Viking. So there are shots on goal, albeit way behind. But like we saw Novo and Lilly do over the past couple of weeks, they're investing billions in manufacturing. So small cap biotech, I believe, will not be able to actually manufacture nor commercialize. So I think the only way out is M&A. Maybe we, we start to see some of that next year. So, Jared, when you, when you just mentioned it. Amgen was the way I would play it because you haven't seen the bounce that you've seen in the other names. But are they too far away from actually making any progress? And the other, the other uh, side of the question is, if we're talking about Pfizer M&A, mm -hmm. do we look at those companies or are they too small that we wouldn't even know them? You could look at them. Um, GPCR is, is structured. That was an IPO earlier this year. Um, stock has done very well out of the gate, albeit on very few patients. Turns, T-E-R-N. These are all small cap names that the healthcare community looks at, but you know, broadly speaking, are probably not super well known. So there are ways to play it. People have put baskets together. It's been hit or miss because you've had some real failures. You've had some early success, this structure being one of them. Um, I think Amgen's a fine way to play it. They haven't gotten nearly the credit Lilly and Novo have, right, just from a market cap perspective. So if they have something there, could there be another $50 billion, $100 billion jump if, in fact, their injection is as good or better? It's possible. Um, is Pfizer worth um, investing? In I mean, do you think it's a value, or do you think that, that it's just too murky at this point? It's trading terribly. It doesn't have the pipeline. There are too many unknowns. It's been decades since the stock has really worked. Right. It worked during COVID for so obvious no. reasons. I, I, I'm not there. I, I find it. I find it very difficult. I think any time that you have to acquire drugs that all of you mentioned um, earlier in the show in order to just fulfill revenue and earnings growth, I think that's a really tough story. For Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, what are sort of the wild cards that can stand in the way of the stocks? continued gains? Is it maybe black box label in Europe because of the suicide uh, concerns? I mean, what, what is it out there? I'm not concerned about the, the suicide okay. situation. It, it seems too small to, re, to really matter. And it's probably, um, you know, really refined to a, a select community. But I do think pricing at some point, we've discussed this before, that will come into play Call it 2027, 2028. Pricing in terms of pressure downward. Downward pressure on yeah, pricing. Because do, of Medicare. Be, exactly, because of Medicare and what that might mean for commercial. And just broad-based managed care saying, before we prescribe this to every person that wants it, make them at least jump through some hoops. We've heard a little bit of anecdotal evidence around um, dieting and exercise for some period of time before getting on it so that the insurance companies are not writing scripts left and right, because if they do... 
you know, it's going to it's going to be a tough problem for him. So if not Eli Lilly, if not Novo, then and not Pfizer, no. <laughs> then what? I, I've been uh, pushing Merck a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the Keytruda concentration the entire world knows is going on. Um, not a secret. They've done a lot of M&A over the past two years, acquiring um, hematology assets, acquiring inflammation assets, and not for massive numbers. So I think they're trying to get ahead of it instead of, you know, getting behind the eight ball and then having to acquire in 2028. They're doing it kind of proactively. And I think AbbVie is fine, too. We saw them do a transaction this week. It was rewarded. Didn't seem like they paid a ton for an asset that could put up three, four billion by 2030. So those are the two I would play, if not these. I'm still I'm still sort of thinking about you saying Astra acquiring uh, the Chinese the right to the Chinese drug. Right. Because that was like it's phase one. Correct. And you're saying even that could move the needle. Something like that. It's because that just seems sort of like a press release. It's possible. I mean, they only paid 100 million plus or minus for it. So I think it's, it's a call option. If it works, amazing. If not, no big deal. But I think you've got to be being in this space has obviously been incredibly impactful for for two companies. No surprise, everyone else is trying to do it. Jared, good to see you. Thank you. You too. Jared Thanks. Mizuho. Michael, go to you for the trade. Yeah, I mean, we saw a huge amount of options trading today on the back of this news, unsurprisingly. Uh, traded almost 400,000 contracts, 200,000 puts trading, and it was mostly the 27 strike. But I did see some people selling some of those puts, kind of drawing a line in the sand here, thinking that maybe most of the damage has been done and they'd be willing to pick it up right around that 27 level, should it fall down there. Yeah. Um well, that's it. I mean, the question is, do we or don't we uh, get to the COVID lows at 2640 or at 29 plus minus in principle? And while we all break these rules, it is never right to buy a stock in a downtrend. And this is just an impaired situation. Stay away. Resist. Yeah, I, I, I like the way Amgen setup is. The problem is people still think about this. It, we have option players on the desk. So the, these are not the ones that, that I'm targeting this to. It's an expensive price stock. You should play that through options. But Amgen is given pretty much zero credit for an obesity drug right now. And this one, Jared mentioned it, briefly glossed over it. This one has not given any credit for it. I think you could find the hidden gem there. And then he talked about Turn Pharmaceutical, T-E-R-N. That one is a lower market cap, but it's a cheap stock. That one you could play too. So when we talk about um, people that are already in the space, we talk about the moat that's there. And I think there's clearly a moat around these two. And then L Lilly is best in class. There's a study that came out essentially saying there's 15 to 18 percent more efficacy and they lost more weight over time. So why not stick with what's working? There's a lot of speculation. If you told me or Mike or Carter that I'm paying $100 million for a call option, I'd, I'd probably say you're better off just buying the stock. And for that reason, I just think given all the speculation, what we don't know, the only thing that we do know for sure is that the Heel in order to get into this space is quite steep. I'm going to stick with one of the uh, one of the people that are already there. It's Lily right. for me. Markets kicking off December the way November ended, charging higher. The street seemingly ignoring Fed Chair Powell's warning that the talk of cutting rates is premature and more hikes could still happen. The major average is finishing the day higher across the board. The Dow up nearly 300 points. The Nasdaq and S&P up more than half a percent each. And check out the 10-year. It ended the week at 4.21 percent, a move of nearly 30 basis points just this week. Carter chartered the 10-year earlier for us uh, this week. Has anything changed? Oh, it's more of the same, meaning rates are sinking. And the irony, of course, is that the street even came up one of those 
terms they, can, they come up with, which was higher for longer. And as soon as that became the headlines, what happens? Rates start going down. <laughs> it's just, it's one of those things. Once people look for a moniker, it's usually the end of the run. But we have a few charts, and let's uh, look at them together. So we, have, uh, we were at 5%. We, we lived within this channel, uh, very uh, mathematically so, and now, of course, we've crashed down through it. Uh, and ultimately, we're approaching what I think is the, uh, the first stopping point, which is 4.195%. We're, we're, we're very close. Uh, at that point, this intermediate move will be a bit overdone, uh, which brings us to the S&P. Of course, the S&P has love of this. Uh, it, uh, there's always this belief that if rates are going lower, you expand the multiple. Uh, but I would say what one client said is interesting. As long as they are staying four to five, three, seven, five, once you go to three, it's not expand the multiple. It means something's wrong on Main Street, right? And that is the issue. So the question here for the market is we are literally back to where we were at the end of July. So a four-month round trip to nowhere. Uh, in fact, the entire year was about the first half, right? This was, if you look at this year, uh, we were the 12th biggest year on record in terms of first half performance. And second half, we're up 3%. We've done nothing in five months. And so we're back to the July high. And ultimately, I think uh, we struggle here. That's not a popular view. I think everyone's keyed up for a big December, a big seasonal move. My bet is otherwise. So if you've enjoyed uh, the market's run this year, sounds like you're saying ring the register. Uh, yes, that's always, the, that's always the temptation. There's only two circumstances you can be in, we know. One is ahead of the market as the year-end approaches, and then one's, one's to maybe sort of play chess with it to keep that gain. Or one's behind and then either makes the decision, let's stop now because it could get worse, or gamble even more so to catch up. That often is a mistake. Yeah. Mike, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you look back to the highs that we were, the level we were back in July, because think what everybody was saying at that time. A lot of people were actually forecasting that we were going to see rate cuts by year's end, and that kind of justified where the market is. And now I feel that a lot of market participants are saying the same thing, looking about a comparable amount of time out, you know, looking five to six months. Essentially, the market, I don't think, is really buying Powell's, you know, higher for longer, or, you know, we're going to keep them, or there might be another rate hike. Uh, the market is forecasting rate uh, decreases, and I think that helps explain where equities are right now. Yeah. Um, do you think the market's rallying to your end? I do. Begrudgingly, I do. <laughs> and I've, I've definitely been on the wrong side of this. I, I hear Carter in terms of you don't want to chase performance, but unfortunately, you know, many investors are forced to chase performance or explain to their investor base for their, and their LPs why they haven't matched performance. So for indexing and for other reasons, I, I think, you know, I would likely play it with call options. I think it's tough because I do think there are a lot of headwinds going into next year. Uh, with that said, I do think you have to put some capital to work and it'd probably be with upside or at the money calls. Not, not to be cliche, but when bears turn bulls and they capitulate, that's when you sell the market. I think there's too many people. That's happened, right? No. Happened. That, how, how much is this? $5.8 trillion we in money markets. We have strategists on the sell side that have all upped their price targets yeah. to new record highs. If you, if you listen to anybody, this is still the most unloved market rally. The amount of money. Money, the trillions that are in money markets right now is still on the sidelines. Once you get those people to say, OK, let's go back to risk assets. That's when you think it's gotten too far. It hasn't gone too far yet. Mike. Well, the VIX, I mean, at least that is an indicator of people's sentiment is definitely suggesting that people are pretty complacent here. I mean, we closed at less than 13. I mean, this is the pretty much the lowest levels of the year that we're at right now. And so that signals that uh, folks are really not that concerned. So it does seem like there it has been a sort of a reluctant switch to bullishness. And if anything should have us a little bit concerned, it's, it's that, that people have gotten awfully complacent. 
So you're saying, though, that you want to be contrarian, basically. I want to stay contrarian because that's what's worked. But you, and when you contrarian means being bullish into your end. Yeah, I, I think I think definitively we go sideways to, to higher. If we break through 4,600 to the upside, then we could see new highs. And we've seen day moves that used to take months. Right. Now you're seeing things just eclipse old, old levels of resistance and blow through them in an afternoon. But consensus is for a big December. Everyone's playing for the Santa Claus rally, if you will, the seasonal strength. And uh, so maybe contrarian would be to be betting against that. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I hear where you guys are going. I just th- I don't think that everyone's got to consensus. Right. We were just at 4150 in the S&P and everyone was eyeballing 3600 in the S&P. It's happened like that. So I think we have the ability to break through if people are still looking at treasuries, if people are still in a 10-year and in a money market, they have to come out of those for this to be long-winded. It's got to, it's got to exhaust. People have to pull that money out, get but into the risk asset. But you have to believe that your return is going to be greater than 5.5%. Yeah, well, you could have a 5.5%. barrier? Half. I mean, well, at, this point, sense, at this point in the run. The stock market's uh, below where it was two years ago, so that 5% would have been real nifty. A couple of weeks ago, we, we, we traded up 10 percent in the S&P. So we're looking at outsized. And the VIX hasn't been a real barometer of the market bullishness in quite some time. And if you're there is complacency if you're in treasuries. There is complacency. And I think that's why I'm saying you want to play it via upside calls. I think that the risk reward profile doesn't really mean that I want to be in terms of this for a medium or long term. With that said, I I tend to agree that there's likely going to be a squeeze. And just because consensus, there still is a horde of cash on the sidelines. And you've seen you've had people in treasuries and you've seen the performance of that asset. So if you're going to make the argument that you should take profits in in equities, you can also make the argument that you should be taking some profits in, in the T-Boom or Treasury market as well and redeploying that into some, into some asset. I would argue that, to Carter's point earlier, yeah, we're flat on the year, but if you look at the timing from, from January to July and then from July here, there have been exacerbated moves. And so options gives you a chance to kind of play on the timing mm-hmm. rather than expecting there to be a complete sh- secular shift higher. Coming up, a huge week of earnings for consumer stocks. We'll bring you a full breakdown and a first look at how options traders are positioning for next week's reports. Plus, today's major movers, a Paramount pop and a Baba breakdown as we highlight the Friday trade. That and much more when Fast Money rolls on. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We've got a news alert here. We've got some additions and deletions to the S&P 500. One major addition, Uber. Uh, Deidre Bosa's got the details. Deidre. Melissa, that's right. Uber is sort of the most noteworthy addition right now to the S&P 500. Speculation months in the making that this would be coming. The shares are up nearly 5% in the after hours. This is really a milestone and kind of cherry on top of a really good year for Uber. It achieved gap profitability. You needed to achieve that before you were eligible to even enter the S&P 500. It's won a bunch of regulatory battles. Um, it's going to be partnering with Black Cabs in London. So a real moment for the company. It's worth over $100 billion in terms of market cap. And this year, it's really taken off. Ever since it went public in 2019, it sort of stagnated, mostly below that $45 IPO price. But this year, as I said, it has just taken off now worth 60 bucks a share. So a real moment. And I think I can bring you some commentary shortly from Dara Khosr Shahi, the CEO himself, shortly. All right. Look forward to that. Uh, Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa with that news on Uber. Mike, any indication in the options market that this, I mean, this has been widely speculated. I'm not sure if anybody sort of put bets on that this would happen. Well, I mean, Uber is one of these, it, it, I mean, it's a popularly traded option. So mm -hmm. I, I think there was a lot of speculation that this could this could happen. Um, but it's not really all that noteworthy in the sense that this is always probably one of the top 50 busiest single stock options in any case, right? So I think that people had been expecting this. They were trading for it, but it didn't make it uh, exceptionally noteworthy in, uh, in that sense. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, people look to this as a good thing because lots of money managers will have to buy Uber in order to mirror the S&P 500. At the same time, if you take a look at some of the fates of other stocks that have been added to the S&P 500, not that great. Um, and I'm thinking mostly of Tesla, <laughs> just because Tesla's been so in the news and it's been trading basically at the level it was when it was added to the S&P 500 a few years ago. Yeah, it's sort of 50-50. If you look at the stats on that, something mm -hmm. gets added, it gets the pop, and then it fades. But one stat that's pretty consistent is when someone's removed from the Dow, the point at which the committee decided, you're so bad, we got to get rid of you, it's <laughs> usually the point at which it starts to rally. All right. Again, we're wait awaiting a comment from CEO Dara Khosr Shahi in just a moment. We'll bring that to you. Uh, let's get to shares of Paramount popping nearly 10 percent after a Wall Street Journal report that the media company is looking to team up with Apple to become part of a new streaming bundle. Last month, there were reports that Warner Brothers, Max and Netflix could be offered together in a Verizon bundle. Could these tie ups become the new norm as the viewing landscape gets more fragmented and more expensive? CNBC's Julie Borson is here to lay out the state of play. And Julie, this is something you've been talking about for a long time, that we're going to go back <laughs> to where we started from. <laughs> Yes, I've been talking a lot about this anticipated rebundling of these streaming services. And that's right today. Paramount shares finishing up nearly 10 percent on this report that the media giant is in talks with Apple about bundling the two companies streaming services. We got no comment from either company, but this would make sense given Paramount's track record of partnerships, including with Walmart Plus, with Delta and internationally with Sky in the UK, Italy and Germany, as well as Canal Plus in France, among other partnerships. Now, Paramount and Apple TV 
TV Plus are working together right now. Paramount is doing the theatrical distribution of Apple's Killers of the Flower Moon. CEO Bob Backish saying last quarter, the power of partnerships is also a meaningful contributor to our momentum. There's also a negative factor that could be in play here. Apple TV Plus and Paramount Plus both have more than 7% churn. That's ahead of the industry average of 5.7%. And insider intelligence saying, quote, Apple TV Plus stands to gain more in subscriptions, but because streaming is more important to Paramount as a company, the deal will have a bigger impact on Paramount. Of course, Melissa will have to wait and see what it looks like, what this kind of deal looks like, when it could happen, and also what kind of terms um, are, are behind the deal. But we're watching for it. Back to right. you. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson. It has been quite a month for Paramount, uh, up 46%. What do you make of this? That's right. I mean, so it's all about what your time frames are in the market. Uh, after dropping some 60, 70 percent to catch a move like this, it's nascent, it's young. And yet, is it nascent young? And when you just said it's up 40 percent. So if you're very short term and tactical, you fade it. If you can deal with the prospective pullback that's coming after a move like this, only to yet go higher, then you initiate a position. It's just about your time frames. I find myself on the opposite side of the, of the chart master here. I actually think that you probably want to, in terms of the short term, continue to ride momentum higher. I, I think with the lack of uh, news, the lack of sports, it makes for a very difficult long-term value proposition for me. Um, so I think I would probably just look to ride the momentum, but long-term, I don't think it's something that I'd be adding to the portfolio. All right, there's a lot more Fast Monday to come. Here's what's coming up next. Baba Bummer, China's champion of e-commerce dropping on a major downgrade. We'll tell you what sent Morgan Stanley running from this name and the rival stock they're betting on instead. Plus, Co and Carter are kicking it old school. The OGs of OA are here to break down some options you can bank on. The technicals and the trade coming up. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We've got a news alert on a few other names besides Uber being added to the S&P and also removed. Steve Kovacs got the details. Steve. Hey, Mel. Yeah, let's talk who's in and out. S&P Global just announced the results of the quarterly balancing and Uber, Apple supplier Jabal and Builder's first source have been added to the S&P 500. Those are replacing Alaska Air, Sealed Air and Solar Edge. Shares of all the new entrants rising in aftermarket trading there, Melissa. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Steve Kovac, that rule about the Dow... Uh, when you're thrown out, it's lights out. How about the S&P? <laughs> no, but I mean, the Dow is such a small universe, 30 stocks. Yeah. By the time, it takes a lot to get in there, and it takes a lot to get thrown out. By the time you throw it out, it's usually rallies. 
All right, let's get to U.S. shares of Alibaba lower today after a downgrade over at Morgan Stanley. Analysts moving the Chinese e-commerce uh, giant to equal weight from overweight, lowering the price target to 90 from 110. Morgan Stanley opting instead to favor Pinduoduo in the space, saying the company is best positioned during the increase in consumer price sensitivity. PDD, of course, uh, the owner-operator of Timu, which competes with Xi'an, the super cheap goods that you can buy shipped directly from China. Grasso, you agree with this call? So if you would have told me about this call a, a, a ways back, I would say I agree with it. I, I think a lot of times nothing bad a, a, about Morgan Stanley specifically. But when you look at these calls, sometimes they're a little bit late. So I think you give a little more room to breathe on Alibaba. I'd rather do the reverse. I'd rather be a buyer of Alibaba off this call than a seller. Mm. Uh, Mike, where do you stand on Alibaba? There was a report before that Jack Ma actually came back and posted an internal message to the company saying, come on, troops, rally. We can do it. Yeah, you know, I, I actually had played in Baba on the long side. You know, we had some bullish moves in a few of the Chinese stocks going into uh, Biden's meeting with Xi. I think there was some bullish sentiment there. But overall, I feel like the Chinese stocks are, are really in, in quite big trouble. This is probably a, a question for Carter, but I'm kind of eyeing that October 22 low in FXI. And, you know, this has had quite a move now, Pinduo Duo, just recently. And I, I'd actually be more inclined to fade it here, I think. All right, Carter. Uh, well, I'm with you there on my, in the sense that if you think about BABA, FXI, or the K-Web, obviously PDD is the biggest weighting in almost 16% of the K-Web, but the ones that are struggling, they just, I mean, at this point, you cannot continue, one cannot continue to say, well, one day. At some point, you just have to move away from something that's bad. They're not working. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm caught on the wrong side of Baba as well, and I think the argument has been valuation and, and reach. Uh, with that said, Pinduoduo, I think, is a tough buy here for the reasons that we, we said, the overarching theme within China and the run, I believe it's already 65 70, 70% that it's realized this year. So it's, it's tough to deploy new capital there when the overarching economic backdrop is challenged. Coming up, can the November to remember winnings keep the good times going? We'll chart some of the biggest gainers and see if these names have more room to run. Plus, defense stocks hitting a record high today. We'll bring you the very latest in the role AI could play in the sector in the months and years to come. Fast Money's back right after this. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another batch of key earnings reports out next week. They include home builder Toll Brothers, AutoZone, Broadcom, and Lululemon. Lulu actually hitting its highest level today in two years. It is now up 46% so far this year. Let's start with Mike here. What are the implied moves for some of these names ahead of next week's results? Yeah, so of these four that you just mentioned, Lulu is the one that's implying the largest move, 6.3%. And that's actually slightly below the average of the last four quarters. This is a name we own. I continue to like it, but I probably want to trade it with options rather than chase it here. Toll, you're looking at a move of about 4.4%. That's a, basically in line with the average. AutoZone, also about the average move of about 3.4% in that case. And Broadcom, a name we also own, is in line or slightly below average at about 3.8%. Which one are you watching, Bodwin? 
Toll. Um, and actually, it's kind of a, a barbell trade with Toll and DHI that I think kind of give you the best insight into the market. Toll on the high end, DHI into the starter homes. Uh, listen, I think these have flown in the face of, of the odds in terms of interest rate moves and, and housing affordability. But I think the, the incentives that the builders are offering are really continuing to attract first-time buyers and then people that can just afford to spend $900,000 or more. And there just hasn't been a, <clears throat> a wealth of existing homes that are on the market because you, you really buy your mortgage. You don't buy the house. You're married to your mortgage. You're not married to the house. So you can't sell something. So the lack of liquidity or lack of inventory on the existing home side has helped all the home builders to all the points that Bono and said. Toll Brothers actually looks like it can go higher. A lot of these charts look very similar. Toll Brothers actually looks a hair better than the rest of the group. Uh, I concur. How about that? Oh. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we might have a chart of toll here, but uh, what we know is a toll, if you think about the market's drop from its July high to its October low, that's almost 11%. Toll as a beta trade, it drops almost 20. And then toll has not only recaptured the high, it is making slight new highs and setting up for a presumptive breakout. Mike, do you like home builders? And if you think the economy is going to tank, can they still go higher just because of this inventory situation? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we have a housing shortage. We own Lennar, so obviously I do like uh, home builders a bit. And, and Steve was really hitting on the critical point, which is if existing home sales, if there's not a sufficient turnover, that creates sort of basically a, a base level of demand. And uh, I think, you know, the point that Bonowin was making is a good one, particularly for toll. You know, people who want to buy a house uh, and can afford to buy one, you know, toll is well positioned because they, they focus on that higher end consumer. But the fact is we just have underbuilt for a number of years and if existing homes aren't being sold, and you know we've seen some pressure in the multifamily area as well recently on the on the basically CMBS side, then you know the single-family homes are are probably still a buy here. All right, coming up, a brand new AI-powered jet drone. We'll be joined by billionaire Palmer Lucky, who designed this incredible piece of defense equipment. More fast money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Up like a rocket, the defense and aerospace ETF, ticker ITA, hitting an all-time high today, up nearly 10% in just the last month. The major players in the space are gathering at the annual Reagan National Defense Forum. That's where CNBC's Morgan Brennan is. She is joined exclusively by Palmer Lucky of Andrel Industries. Morgan, take it away. Melissa, thank you. So the big news for Andrel today, Palmer, it's great to be sitting here with you, um, is that you've unveiled something called Roadrunner. It's a reusable missile. It's powered by AI. This is unlike anything we've seen within this market. Walk me through it. So Roadrunner, we just announced last night, is an AI-powered, jet-powered drone interceptor that we've been building for the last two years to counter the types of drone threats that you're seeing increasingly strike at U.S. troops, at partner troops, at allied troops. We've seen these threats get much more advanced over the last few years. They're faster. They're more maneuverable. They're carrying much more dangerous payloads. They're attacking from much longer ranges. We started building Roadrunner because we wanted to build a vehicle that would allow you to address those threats and take them out long before they get Close to you. So it can take off and land vertically on its uh, two thrust vector turbojet engines, fly at very high speeds, maneuver very aggressively, and go after targets that never would have really been possible for our previous. Uh, drone interceptors to be able to address. Yeah, I mean, there's already, to your, to your point, there's already demand in the marketplace for this. We've got a, a war in Ukraine. Yep. We've got this war in the Middle East, um, troops that need to be protected in Syria. And then, of course, the DOD looking to modernize the military. Do you already have customers? 
Yeah, we already have for this product Roadrunner M, which is the weaponized variant of Roadrunner, which is a more general purpose jet-powered drone that we build. Uh, we already have a U.S. government customer. It's already been operationally assessed, and we are in production right now, ramping up production into larger quantities. And you, you mentioned that there's demand for these things. I want to be clear, it's not just demand for systems like this. It's for large quantities of systems that can defend against these types of aerial threats. Something we've seen in Ukraine, something we've seen elsewhere, is just a very limited number of things are being made, like numerically, not the number of different products, but numerically, the, the quantities of these individual products is not matching up to the number of threats that our adversaries are building, whether it's Russia or Iran or China or a wide range of others. Yeah, uh, and it's such a key point, especially at a time where restocking of supplies uh, for the military yep. is very much in focus right now. Andrew's very disruptive in terms of not only your business model and how you develop and then bring stuff to market. You, you spend your own money and then you and then you basically pitch it out to Defense Department and others. Um, we're, we're more of a defense product also, company than a defense contractor yes, is how I like to think yes, about it. Um, but also, you're very aggressive with your price points. Who are you competing against? Well, we're very aggressive with our price points because we have to be. We're a new entrant. We don't do that much cost plus contracting. We use our own money to build products and then make them work, and then we sell them to the government. That's the vast majority of our business model. That means that we're incentivized to move quickly. We're incentivized to reuse technology that we've built in the past. Our AI platform, Lattice, uh, propulsion systems, battery systems, flight controls, software. Uh, we're incentivized to reuse those things, and so that allows us to have lower price points than if we were developing all those things from scratch every time, which is what you're incentivized to do as a cost-plus contractor. Of course, I'm going to ask you, there's been reports that you are potentially in the market to raise more capital right now, uh, maybe through not the traditional funding rounds. A, is that true? And B, <laughs> how does that set you up maybe here in the coming years for a potential IPO? Look, Andrel's going to IPO, and you know, that's not even huge news. If people don't know, they haven't been watching my Twitter and they haven't been paying attention to our interviews. The reality is the U.S. government really likes companies that are publicly traded for their major programs. They really like being able to outsource some of the due diligence to you know, Wall Street more broadly, the Securities Exchange Commission, all these other entities that are going to be able to make sure you're not cooking your books, that you actually have the money you need to capitalize things properly. They can have little more confidence that you're not going to up and disappear and go out of business. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we want to be a publicly traded company. Our customers are explicitly telling us they would like us to be a publicly traded company. Uh, but I think there's other strong reasons for us to be a publicly traded company as well and to be something that people in America can be part of outside of just our private investors, whom I absolutely love and adore. Many of them are yeah. people I worked with in my previous company, Oculus, which I sold to Facebook for a few billion dollars. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I'd love to, do, you know, love to do good by them, but I'd like to do, do something with everybody, too. Okay, Palmer Lucky of Andrel Industries. Thanks thank for joining you so me much. here. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. All right, Morgan, thank you. Morgan Brennan. Uh, Micah, what's your pick in defense? Uh, Boeing, I think, actually. Uh, you know, some of the other big contractors like uh, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin haven't been doing quite as well. The thing about Boeing is they seem to be getting out of the woods on the commercial side as well. So if you want to play defense and you also want to play um, you know, basically, basically commercial aerospace, I think Boeing is, is the way to do it. Coming up, an old-fashioned options action. It is Friday, after all. November wrapping up with some big winners, but can the rally hold strong through December? The OGs of options doing what they do best right after this break.
Welcome back to Fast Money. November wrapping up a strong rally. Boeing, Wayfair, CrowdStrike all up double digits. Shopify up 54 percent and Coinbase jumping a whopping 62 percent for the month. Regional banks also rebounding. The KRE ETF up nearly 14 percent in November. And with a 5 percent move just today, December may be setting up for an even nicer run. Mike's got the trade here, Mike. Yeah, so taking a look at the regionals, obviously some of the pressures in the space are already well known. We know that there's some economic pressures. We know that they're overrepresented in terms of commercial real estate exposure. And we did see delinquencies for office buildings continue to increase most recently. But they are actually stabilizing in other areas. And the thing is, if you think that there's going to be a decrease in rates, that's going to reduce their cost of deposits and that could improve their net interest margins. I think we can also take advantage of the fact that options on KRE, the regional bank ETF, are also relatively cheap. So I think we can play this to the upside here. I was looking at a call spread going out to January. You could buy a $5 call spread. I was looking at the 48.53, which is just out of the money. I think it closed around 47 and a half today. This would be a relatively inexpensive way to play to the upside for another 40 to 50 days or so. Mm, and that includes uh, maybe a Santa Claus rally. Carter, which you don't believe in, but we, we <laughs> what should, do you think of the chart? We shall see. That's right. So we have one chart of the carry, and just a couple of things before we get to it. We know that there are about 140 stocks that comprise this uh, ETF. Do you know that the market cap of all of them added up is less than J.P. Morgan? Um, so in many ways, it's a beta trade, right? These are small um, domestic-based companies, and they are on the move. And so the thinking here is that we will recover to that trend line depicted in the chart, and uh, we want to be long the group. Do you agree, even if it's begrudgingly, Bonowin? I agree that I'd be playing this with options, um, and I like the payout, three to one. It's tough to argue against that. I mean, we've seen the we've seen the collapse. I agree with the the beta trade aspect of it. If you look at what the KRE is down 19% year to date, while the XLF is up 5% year to date. Had a great month, as you said, but it's up 19% KRE for the month, and the XLF is up 11%. So you're giving up a little bit of beta, or maybe a lot of a lot of bit of beta. Say that five times fast. (laughs) But more safe for me is to buy the XLF because when these companies go out of business, who buys them? J.P. Morgan. I'd rather be the... the You're buying Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, it's okay. In the XLF. Right. I mean, the XLF is dominated by Berkshire, which is not a bank, right? And also big insurance companies and uh, broker-dealers or Capital One. But it works, too. Yeah. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Michael Coe. Yeah, the VIX is very cheap. If you want to get into the market right now, by January, 460 calls and SPY, less less than 2% of SPY's level right now. Bono and Eisen. Trend is extremely strong, but I think if you've been in, you take some profits, but let the rest ride. GLD. Carter Braxton Worth. Add to that SLV, silver. Uh, more to come. I hope. Steve. The show went by quick. Did it not? I mean, time flies and you're having a ball. Do you like paper stocks? Because I do. Westrock, WRK. You didn't seem convinced that. I like paper. WRK. This stock is my currently my biggest position, and I think it's going to double, and I'm not exaggerating now. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here on Monday at 5 for more Fast. Have a terrific weekend. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 